Today's reading is Revelation 2, verses 1 to 11. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's word. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Our Father God, we have heard already this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom Uh, All authority uh, rests, and he now in uh, power is present with us by his Spirit, and so we pray that we would be addressed in the power of that Spirit, so that we might hear what the Spirit says to these churches, and so says to this church today, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we continue today in our series in Revelation, looking at Revelation chapters 1 to 4 uh, in this block. And we began with Revelation chapter 1 last week, and we enter slightly different territory this week. We're looking at the specific messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Now in a sense, the whole book of Revelation is like a, a message to be circulated to these churches. But in chapters 2 and 3, we home in on these seven churches. And today we'll look at the first two messages, the first two of seven, the message to Ephesus and to Smyrna. But the churches could only be addressed in chapter two after we had the vision of the whole Christ, the risen Christ of chapter one. And that was for two reasons. First of all, to see as we heard last week that the one who addresses the church is the victorious judge. He is the Christ who is already victorious. And so before the church can can get its marching orders, it needs to know that when it goes into the battle, the outcome is certain, because the Christ is the victorious Christ. 
we saw that Christ wins. That's the message of Revelation. So don't misread the battle scenes of Revelation. The outcome is certain. Christ and his church win. But the second reason why chapter 2 and 3, the message to the churches, must follow chapter 1, is because the whole church needs the whole Christ. So let me explain. In chapter 1, we had the vision of the whole Christ. He had uh, head, hair, eyes, voice, feet. He held certain things in his hand. He walked in a certain place. We needed the vision of the whole Christ, because that vision of the whole Christ gets, if you like, divided up and applied in chapters 2 and 3. A part of Christ for a certain church, the right part of Christ for the right church. And that'll be a key as we try and understand these messages to the churches. If you like, the key is in the first verse of the message to each church, because that tells us the part of Christ that each church needs. Now, of course, we thought last week that uh, the seven churches are seven real churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, roughly. But, of course, they are seven churches. The whole church is being addressed here, every church, this church too. Now, come with me to chapter 2, verse 1. And this tells us the part of Christ that the Ephesian church needs most. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him, that is Christ, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we pick up where we finished last week. The stars and the lampstands, they're not mysterious because chapter 1, verse 20, has told us the mystery. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the angels are the the divine representatives of the churches. They stand for the churches. So where are the churches? Well, they're in the symbolic center of Jesus' power, in his right hand. And that image is double-edged. They have his power. His power is with them, but they're within his power. A church has access to the immeasurable power of Christ, but no church is truly independent of Christ. And uh, verse 1, if you remember last week, it puts us in the temple. That's where the image puts us. Christ is like the priest walking amidst the temple. He's tending the lampstands. The church is here. And uh, as he tends them, he trims them, he repairs them, he mends them, he fills them with oil. And we're supposed to understand from the image that Christ does this for a purpose, and that purpose is light. He tends the lampstands for light. Because think about the image. The lampstand, it's not just an ornament. It's not there just to decorate. It's there to give light. Now, the the lampstand in the temple was also a stylized tree, a golden tree with seven branches. But its purpose was to give light. The Ephesian church is going to be rewarded and will see reproved on this basis, whether or not it gives light. The lampstand churches are to be a light to the world in the same way that the lampstands lit up the temple. And that's important because it's on that basis that this church receives its praise and on the basis of which Christ reproves it. So 2 verse 2, Christ praises this church. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. 
You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I know your deeds. That's the qualification of a judge. A judge must know the deeds of the people he judges. And deeds in this letter, they're the telltale signs of what people think of Christ. They're the reliable index of what we think of Christ. Deeds. And here he knows them with approval. He praises them, verse 2 and 3. And do you see what he praises them for? They keep going, they persevere, they endure, literally they bear up by being intolerant, by not bearing with certain people, evil people, verse 2. I know that you cannot tolerate, literally bear with wicked men. And so, verse 3, I know you're persevering and enduring hardships, literally bearing up for my name. But that seems odd to praise intolerance. And so we need to know what is this intolerance and why is it praiseworthy? Well, notice it's an intolerance of wicked people within, not without the church. People coming into the church. And that's important. We need to step back for a moment. The church is, in the language of Revelation, the designated witness to Christ. It's like a courtroom. The world is like a courtroom. And the church is the chosen witness to Christ. And like any faithful witness, the church has to tell the truth about Christ by what it says and what it does. And so it's a great problem if wicked people within the church speak about God and for God. Because then the witness, God's chosen witness in the church, misrepresents Christ. The church then stops telling the truth about God and tells a lie about God. It tells a lie. It says... um, God is a God who's compromised by evil. God is a God who tolerates wickedness himself. And the world will not know the God who speaks. It misrepresents God. That's why it's a serious problem, verse 2. These wicked men, they come and they claim to be apostles, but are not. Now the Ephesians know well that uh, when someone comes and claims to be an apostle, they're claiming to speak with authority from God and about God. And so they must be tested. They must be tested. And here they have done. They find them false. And they do not tolerate them in the church. They won't allow them a platform in the church. We see it again in verse 6. The Ephesians hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. False and immoral teachers who also want to get into the church. Christ hates them too. He praises them for it. And so as the other six churches are are copied in on this message to Ephesus, well, they're meant to understand, and so are we, that it is praiseworthy to keep wickedness and falsehood outside the church. So at Christ Church, we should hate any misrepresentation of God in the church. We're supposed to test and guard public speech about God and the life that goes with it. There is to be integrity of speech and life. And when the church does that... And only when it does that, it bears witness, true witness, to Christ. Christ can't have wickedness and falsehood in his name, because he is a Christ who is pure and true. Now, we need to say this because, uh, although we may not think it, guarding the mouthpiece of God is hard work. We might think it comes easy, maybe for people who are particularly overzealous, But no, the real work is hard work. That's the labor-intensive words of verse 2. They tell us that. Hard work, perseverance, it involves testing. 
Verse 3, they've persevered, endured hardships. They've not grown weary. It's laborious and it's costly doing this. But if it's not easy, nor is it optional. So verse 1, remember, showed us just how close Christ and the church is. The church does not have a life and vocation of its own. It can't redefine itself. The church is in the right hands of Christ. Christ walks amidst the lampstands. And Christ wants the church to be a light. And in verses 2 and 3, we discover that one way the church is a light is it keeps darkness out of the church. But that's only half the church's task. Verse 4, Christ has something against the Ephesians. He says, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, it's not what it might look at first glance. We might look at this and think, ah, yes, okay, we've had some harsh truth, some intolerance. We need to temper that with love, and the Ephesians haven't done that. Harsh truth tempered by love. But not so. Verse 6, they hate the right things. According to Christ, the problem is not their hatred, but their love. The problem in verse 5 is that their love is a past love. It's the love they had at first. That's why they're to do the things they did at first. For the Ephesians, you could say that the days of zealous love for Christ, they were the past days, the old days. Something had changed since then. They could look back on days where everywhere they went, in the face of a hostile majority, they gave light. They overcame the darkness. They were not overcome by it. They were truly a light in the world. Their love made them a light wherever they went. But that has changed. And it may be that uh, some of us here can say something has changed for us too. Maybe we look back like the Ephesians when we became Christians. Or maybe not a particular point in time. That's not the point. The question is, was there a time when we had a zealous love for Jesus and something now has changed? Somehow that love has grown cold. Well, our usual way of explaining that is uh, it's a stage of life thing. You know, it used to be life was less complicated. It was the zealousness of youth. But we've got more commitments now. Life's more complicated. It's a stage of life thing. But that's not what verse 5 says. It says it's a spiritual problem. It's a matter of loyalty. You have forsaken your first love. And elsewhere in the New Testament... Jesus explains the reason why love grows cold, the reason why things have changed, perhaps, for us. He says, Matthew 24, verse 9, speaking of the end times, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear, deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The increase of wickedness. We abandon our love for Christ because of the increase of wickedness. Either when we're beaten down by wickedness, by the world, or when we're drawn in by by wickedness and by the world. And so we must ask, are there things where we've decided we're no longer going to resist? Are there places, contexts, people with whom we say, we're not going to stand out, stand up for Christ in this place? But the problem with the world making our love grow cold 
is that that's like darkness putting out a light, which is a problem when our job is to be a lampstand, to bring light to a dark world. Which is why the threat of verse 5 makes such sense. This isn't uh, Christ's second coming. It is, as we heard last week, a localized coming. Christ's coming in advance judgment on his church, and he has to. The church is a light. If a light decides its job is not to give out light in the world anymore, well, that job of giving light must be taken away. And so verse 5, we're to look back at how far we've been drawn into the world, how much we've retreated from standing up for Christ in every area of life. And in the language of verse 5, remember the height from which we have fallen and repent. And verse 5 tells us how to do that. Do the works you did at first. Don't try and drum up the love from within. Don't try and recapture what, what, what was it that uh, made me so zealous, full of love in those early days. Recover your first love by doing your first works, says verse 5. Remember what you did when you pointed people to Christ by what you did, what you said. Well, do it again, says verse 5. But if that sounds like a heavy burden for people who are already beaten down by the world, Remember where the power lies, where the power comes from. It was there in verse 1. The churches are in his right hand, in the midst of his presence. And so we're to remember here, our calling to be a tree of light. In two ways, we're to keep darkness from the church, and we're to bring light to the world. But verse 7 finishes uh, with reference to the tree of life. It says, he who overcomes, the standard motif for victory, the Christian will be victorious just like Christ is. He who overcomes will have the right to eat from the tree of life. And this is the other way to read these letters. So if the first verse gives us the part of Christ that we need, well, the last verse gives us the portion for the Christian, the gift that Christ gives to the Christian. And here, verse 7 puts a real spin on verses 1 to 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, that makes verses 1 to 6 look very different. You see, we're not just back in the temple now, the place of God's special presence. We're back in the place of God's special presence, the Garden of Eden. And just as a divine figure walks among the trees in the temple the lampstands. Well, there's a divine figure in verse 1 walking amongst the garden. We remember too that in the garden there was a great fall and so here, verse 5, and we remember above all in the garden that the tree of life was an offer and so here in verse 7. And we have a tree of light then and a tree of life. We begin with a tree of light and we have a tree of life at the end. But actually they're one tree because the tree of light, the lampstand in the temple stood for the tree of light. It said there will be again a day, a hope, when human beings will live in the unrestricted, unlimited presence of God and have life forever. In other words, the light told you that there was life in God. That's what it means when Jesus is light, the light of the world. He shows that there is life in him. 
And now the church is that light in the world, that lampstand. And its purpose is the same, to show that there is life in him. And so verse 7 brings us back to the reason, if you like, why we first became Christians. Because there is life in the Son. Life in the Son of God. And we're to remember that, and then we will too be a light in the world. And show the world that there is life in the Son. So in a sense, uh, verse 7 tells us that the lesson we're to learn is the lesson of the Garden of Eden. Unlike Adam, we're to, to keep evil from encroaching on God's sanctuary, the church. Unlike Adam, we're to, to spread out, we're to light up a wilderness world with the presence of God. And unlike Adam, we will eat from the tree of life. We will have life unlimited in the presence of God forever. Well, that is the message to Ephesus. And we're going to turn now to, uh, much more briefly, to the message to Smyrna, the church in Smyrna. And uh, in verses 8 to 11, there is a single principle underlying these verses. Just one principle. And it is that the, the first Easter, what we celebrated last week, the first Easter changed something forever. It changed the relationship between death and life. The old story... In the old world was that death cuts off life. Death ended life. But the first Easter says that something changed forever and that death now leads to life for the Christian. As for Christ, death then life, so for the Christian. Death then life. And that's all important because uh, the church in Smyrna was facing death and death-like things. Slander, suffering, prison, and even death. Come to verse 9. Christ says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He says, I know that you're afflicted and that you're poor, and it's because you're Christians. But, he says, you're actually rich. It's a paradox, but Christ says, when you're poor for my sake, you're actually rich. And when you're facing death for my sake, Actually, that leads to life. It's a paradox. Now, uh, in this context, they're facing hot persecution in Smyrna from the Jews in the first century there. And the Jews are claiming to have the only special relationship with God, not the Christians, and they're persecuting the Christians. But Christ says of these particular Jews in Smyrna, actually their special relationship is not with God, but with Satan. Verse 9. And that's proved by the fact that they slander and persecute these Christians. And so, in that atmosphere, Christ says, Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Which might seem an odd command given what he goes on to say in verse 10. It seems that verse 10 is full of things to fear. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days maybe even to the point of death, verse 10. Now, the 10 days tells us that it's a limited time. But even so, the message is still, you will suffer and be imprisoned. But the reason why the church is not to fear is chapter 2, verse 8. Christ is the first and the last who died and came to life again. 
So Jesus says to us and to them with authority, the worst that can happen to you in this world, death, only leads to life. Prison precedes the crown of life. In fact, verse 10, do not be fearful, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. So fear and faithfulness are enemies. Fear is always the enemy of faithfulness. If you're fearful, it will stop you being faithful, says Christ. If you remove the fear of death, that will enable you to be faithful unto death. But if this seems like make-believe, we need to remember last week, Jesus doesn't underestimate the suffering of death. If you were here at our Good Friday service, you will know that he knows exactly the trials and the terrors of death. But in being the first person to come through death into life, we're told in chapter 1, verse 18, that he now has control over death. He's got the keys to death. We thought last week he can lock it up like a pet. That's how much control he has over death. Now, now death can't harm us. It only leads to life. But as we finish, I want to give us some reasons why This message, this comfort, is not just for the persecuted church in Smyrna, but is for us today. It's for this church now. And it is because the Spirit tells us it is. So verse 11. Do you see this message is not just to Smyrna, but to all the churches? They're not facing persecution in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis just as we may not be, but the Spirit of God gives this word to every church, whether or not they face persecution. And that's quite possibly because the job of being a Christian and being a church, it's less about geography and more about history. It's less about where you live and more about when you live. So we often think today, well, we're not in North Korea, we're not being run out of our homes, therefore we haven't really had the call to be faithful unto death that this gives us. It's more a matter of geography, we think, where we live. But actually we saw last week that we live at a point in history that is all important because we live after the king, God's king, has been enthroned. Oh, it's a matter of history now. So our calling is the same no matter what our circumstances. Our calling is to be a faithful witness to this risen Christ. And so it applies in prosperous Laodicea, the last letter, as we'll see just as it does in persecuted Smyrna. It applies to us in London today. We too need to be faithful, not fearful. To which we might ask, well, fearful of what? What have we to fear? Well, in verses 8 to 11, do you see that death has its friends and associates too? There are things that are like death, things that keep company with death. Afflictions, slander, verse 9. Death is like the limits, but everything that comes before death is included. So we may know slander, difficulty, exclusion. Suffering might be of a different degree, but it's not of a different kind. The fear you and I could feel, that might be a different degree, not as much, but it's not of a different kind. And so we need to know this lesson. Death and its friends cannot threaten life but only lead to life. As for Christ, so for the Christian. And then finally, 
We may not die for being Christians. Some of us may. Many of us won't. But we will all face death as Christians. And uh, we may therefore at least store this message up. Some of us won't need to store it up for a future day because death will feel close at hand already. Maybe the, the death of a relative, someone in our family, a close friend. Or maybe a difficult diagnosis that's changed everything and brought death closer. For those you know that death provokes fear, will know the comforts that the risen Christ gives in these verses. The worst that this world can bring, even death itself, does not have the power to cheat you out of life everlasting with Jesus Christ. Life in the new creation. And so the message finishes, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Because in a sense, the death to fear is the second death. In the book of Revelation, the first death, after the first death, we're we're raised for judgments. And then on the basis of that judgment, some, those who are not in Christ, will they go to the second death, an eternal death. But this isn't put in here to scare. It's put in to encourage the Christians. The point is that Christ holds the keys to death, period. The first death and the second death. And so for the Christian, he has the keys of death and Hades. Do not fear the first death such that you're unfaithful to Christ. The worst this world can bring, death, well, it only leads to life. So the message is clear to those in Christ. You need not fear the first death. You need never fear the second death. Death only leads to life. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's pray together. Our Father God, we praise you that uh, the Lord Jesus is the light of the world and that the Lord Jesus passed through death and rose to life. And we praise you that uh, all that he has done, uh, we can follow in his power according to his pattern. We pray that we would do that. Uh, by bearing witness as lights in a dark world. We pray that we would guard the church, guard your truth. We would give a true account of you by the things that we say and do. We pray uh, that we would overcome the darkness of the world by being um, zealous, that we would have the love of Christ that lights up all the places where we are, the people that we are with. And we pray, Father God, that um, you would give us this assurance for this day and for future days to know that the worst that this world can bring will only lead to life because of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.